Good afternoon. I'm Jim Henson, director of the Texas Politics Project here at the University of Texas at Austin. For those of you who were here for the morning Senate panel, you got to hear all this again. Sorry. On behalf of the Texas Tribune, I'm very happy to welcome you to the sixth annual Texas Tribune Festival and to the panel, the House Agenda. The panel is this panel is supported by Gulf States Toyota. Those sponsors and donors underwrite this event. They play absolutely no role in determining the, event, the events. The Evans content, that was kind of a slip. The events content, panelists, or line of questioning. So please silence your phones. Um, if you're tweeting, the hashtag is, tia, is TTF. Uh, we have another distinguished and another large panel, so I'm going to keep the introductions relatively brief so we can get to it. We've all talked, and we're going to try to have sort of more of a conversation than a you know, go, 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 go. I think most everybody here is pretty capable of that probably. I'm looking at you, Jonathan Sticklin. <laughs> I'm ready. Uh, immediately to my left, Representative Carol Alvarado, uh, Representative Linda Coop, Representative Drew Springer, Representative Jonathan Sticklin, Representative uh, Chris Turner, and Representative Gene Wu. So please welcome them. And everybody's traveled here. Okay, so let's start. I mean, we'll, we'll start on, we'll try to make it positive, but it, it's going to sound a little more negative. What are we thinking about the budget and what the, how the budget's going to influence the agenda in the House? On one hand, we know that things are tighter than they've been in the past, uh, at least in the, for the last couple of cycles. On the other hand, uh, there was, as, as people have pointed out, y'all left some money in the last budget, which now looks to have been pretty wise, given where oil is gone. Uh, is the budget going to be a big deal? I mean, it's always the thing you have to do, but how hard is it going to be? I'm going to start with you since you're right here, Representative. I, I think it's, it, this next session is going to be about <clears throat> budget, bathrooms, borders, STRs, TNCs, the kind of the alphabet uh, soup of the uh, House. But I think the budget's going to drive a lot of what goes on. Um, as you said very uh, correctly, we left about $4 billion unspent and we're going to have to use that for a lot of things. I mean, we have our Medicaid costs that are coming in higher than expected. We have to do something on education. Um, if not, if we don't fully fund our school districts on the front end, then we run into this problem with recapture. And we're having an election in Houston, independent school district, to deal with that. So I think that um, we're going to have to possibly, you know, I know... Some may not agree, but we have to look for other revenue streams. We can't completely rely on the traditional sources of revenues that we have. Well, and there it is. More revenue? Representative Stickland, what do you think? I would respectfully disagree with that. Uh, <laughs> let me say it's, it's good to be here. Um, thank you for the Tribune for putting this on. I, I will also say that it feels a lot safer uh, since we instituted campus carry uh, here at the <laughs> campus. And so I appreciate that. Um, you know, the budget's going to be interesting. I hope I hope that the budget discussion um, starts with realizing that every bit of the dollars that we spend are actually taxpayer dollars, and that should be our number one priority is protecting the taxpayers. And I hope that um, the shortage and the price of oil and gas going down allows us the opportunity to have a real discussion of what are the real priorities, what is the proper role of government, because we have to start there first, and we haven't been for a while. So I think it's an opportunity that I'm excited about. Yeah, well, I think that when we talk about the budget, of course, the budget's the one thing that we 
absolutely have to pass. You know, all these other bills that we'll talk about, we don't have to do any of those things, but the Constitution requires us to pass a budget. And I think we all need to keep in mind a, a budget is a moral document, and it says what kind of state it is we want to be and, and what kind of future we want to build for, for our children. And, and, and I think that, you know, we need to look at the environment we're operating in, uh, right? So one out of four Texas children live in poverty. Uh, we have a, an accelerating rate of, of women uh, dying during pregnancy or, or in childbirth. We have a, a mental health care uh, uh, near crisis where our uh, county jails are the largest mental health care providers in the state. Harris County Jail, as Carol and Jean would tell you, is the largest in, in the state. And, and so we have, we have a public school system that's chronically underfunded with one, nearly one-third of our schools receiving less funding than they did in 2009. So we need to, we, all these problems don't go away just because we ignore them. Uh, they get worse. And, and it's our children uh, and, and 27 million Texans that ultimately pay the price. So I hope that's the prism that we look at the budget in this session. I'll just yeah. say, um, so being on appropriations uh, committee, we are looking at education and we'll be looking at CPS fairly soon too. So next week we'll be looking at education um, I'm not going to bore you with the, with the acronyms that we have to look at, but basically it's uh, the property taxes and how, how can we drive those property taxes down to still meet our educational needs. And that's really a challenge in a lot of states. Their benchmark is kind of flipped, so they balance it more on the general fund than in property taxes. So that's one of the charges that we'll have. And, of course, CPS, and I'm sure everybody's been reading about that, is really going to be a challenge. These are wards of the state. These are children who are in foster care. Um, the, the, the court system has appointed a special, uh, two special masters on that, and they will be uh, giving us their, their direction because we're going to be under a court order. So in appropriations, those are the kinds of things that we're looking at here uh, up until January. Representative Springer, you see these problems. I mean, do you think... What's, is there going to be the latitude to address this? Well, I mean, I think it starts in November when we'll find out if, who's our president. Does Texas have to put money to do border security or do the federal government finally going to do what they're supposed to do? And I think who we elect is going to determine a lot of that. So we can figure out whether we have half a billion or a billion extra dollars, depending on uh, whether Trump wins or Clinton wins. And so I think it starts there. Um, it'll be interesting to see what the agencies come back that are being asked to take cuts, if, if, if people think that that cause those cuts to go too far. I think we've also got to look at uh, a different way of addressing situations. I've been working with Representative Andy Murr on, on mental health. I think we have, I agree with Chris. I mean, it's one of the biggest problems I face in my 22-county district is mental health beds. I think we have some unique opportunities to use telehealth and do some different things that may free up some of those beds. Uh, those don't take new money. It takes new thinking. It takes people working together um, in understanding how that process would work. So I think we have to go through that process. You know, we'll start with ways and means on Monday and start uh, addressing property taxes and go from there. One of the things that comes, that looms large in the, buzz, in the budget is Medicaid right now. Um, and the state's 1115 waivers will expire at the end of 2017. What are the prospects? I mean, I'm, I'm hearing mixed signals. Obviously, there are party differences on this. You mentioned the presidential election possibly changing the terrain on this. Representative Wu, you have a sense of whether there is an opening on Medicaid or not? Is there a, and, you know, we could stipulate that there's going to be people that will just be simply against yeah. 
Medicaid as stipulated under the ACA. But is there room to maneuver on that? I wish there were. I mean, I, I sincerely hope for the sake of our state that I wish there were, um, but I don't think so. I mean, from the very beginning, I've said that Texas will expand Medicaid when it becomes so politically embarrassing that they have no choice. I don't think we've gotten to that point yet. Um, I think that once pretty much all the other states fall and it's been proven how much money it saves, it's been proven how many people uh, that it's helped, and you know the call just needs to be louder and louder from both sides. So you, you come to Houston, you come to Harris County, we have a Republican uh, county judge, a Republican um, uh, commissioner's court who's begging for, uh, begging for expansion. We have business groups begging for expansion. But I think it mostly will fall on deaf ears because the political punching bag is just too good. And, and I've yet to hear one good reason why we shouldn't expand. Well, I, I can address that right now. I, I said one good reason. <laughs> well, let me tell you, uh, Representative Wu, who I respect and work with greatly on a number of different issues, uh, said something that I think was interesting. He said, when you see how many people it helps. Well, here's the truth. Obamacare hasn't helped people. It has, cost us, it has cost us hundreds of thousands of jobs in this country. And what we, have to, what we have to realize is, is that when government spends a dollar, they are taking money from one person and redistributing it how they see fit. And through that process, the bureaucracies that take a bit of that and make it so much less effective, every single time that we talk about putting new regulation and involving government further in our health care, what has ended up happening so far is prices go up, access goes down, and one of the main calls that I get into my house district, in my district office, are people who have Obamacare that they've signed up for on, on the website, but they can't even find a provider that will take it. The system is broken, and taking in Medicaid is a short-term gain. They're chasing the dollars, but long-term it will bankrupt us. We're seeing that in other states. It'll play out here, and, and, and we just cannot do it. So, so that's the argument, though, though what, which we've heard about this for a while. So what is the, then the policy solution to that money going away at the end of 2017? The policy solution is, is we need to get government out of the way. They need to get government out of the way between the relationship between Texans and their doctors. And that will drive the prices down. We need to focus on the economy, and we need to realize that we should be in charge of our own health care instead of a bunch of unelected bureaucrats. Well, let, let, me, let me respond to a couple of things there, because I, I think it's important we talk about what the, what the facts really are. And Jonathan talked about uh, it's cost uh, how many hundreds of thousands, millions of jobs. The reality is when the Affordable Care Act was passed, the unemployment rate was over 8% in this country. It's about 5% today. We've had tremendous job growth over these last several years. Um, the, the outcomes are clear under the Affordable Care Act thus far. We are saving money. Healthcare is making up a smaller percent of our gross domestic product than it was before the ACA was passed. Outcomes are better. We are, we are treating people better and providing better health care while spending less money, which is one of the key goals of, of the ACA. And most importantly, 20 million Americans have insurance today who didn't have it before right. President Obama passed this law. And one million more than one million of them are right here in the Lone Star State, despite the Republican leadership doing everything they can to try to stop people from enrolling in the, in the marketplace and refusing to expand Medicaid. If we expanded Medicaid, as, as Representative Wu and, and Carol said, 
we would, we would add you know, a million people uh, at least overnight, just like that, and provide uh, health care that, that helps to treat some of these chronic illnesses and save money in the, in the long run. Uh, well, that's what but at the same yeah, time, though, we're seeing, though but we're seeing from the insurance perspective, you, know, you say they have insurance. Well, that's other than the, the ones who are about to drop out of the program in the state of Texas and the fact that several of the counties are now down to one provider and looking at a 60% increase in, in premiums. Um, you know, and then when we find out that the young people this year, when they come out and start coming after the ones who haven't signed up and start feeing and finding them, we'll find out how much they really like it. And considering that Texas has the highest uninsured rate, we ought to be doing everything that we yeah, can right. to make sure that Texans are able to have affordable, accessible and, 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 and that's the difference in philosophy when you break it down, okay? We, bo- we would all agree that we want Texans to have the best sure. health care possible. I fundamentally disagree that government is a solution to that problem. Right. I think the free market and individual responsibility, I buy into the idea of self-governance. I think that I can spend my dollars more effectively and better for me and my family than, than a politician or someone in Austin can. We get rid but, of but I'm curious, but in the, in the short run, though, there is a, there's a more immediate policy problem, right, which is the money that, you know, there's about $4 billion that are, yeah. are going to go away that you know, our government money, and that's fine, but it is being spent on a particular problem. That problem will, at least in the short run, even if the market solved the problem, still exist. So what I'm, you know, I want to stay a little bit concrete in terms of what, what, is, what, are the, what is the likelihood that the House will do anything to address that problem Well, I'll this tell you time? this. If the voters no. of Texas got to vote on it, there's not a chance that they would. Because the people that they keep sending down to Austin... 99 Republicans in the Texas House, not one of them, except for J.D. Sheffield, literally campaigned on expanding Obamacare. That's what the people want, and that's what we're going to give them. This is about representative government. But what is that? I still don't, haven't gotten a good sense of what the, that is. There is if, no if, chance in terms of that. But this, but, but this discussion is the, very, is the, is the crux of it. This is, this is a partisan issue now. This is no longer an issue about what is the right policy. This is a strictly blue or red issue. If you're on the blue side, you strictly believe one thing. If you're on the red side, you strictly believe in an, another thing. This is like climate change. You're never going to convince anybody on their side that there is climate change because they'll find the facts to prove whatever they want to prove and, and vice versa. You, we're not going to get to this until it becomes emergency. And you know what? I thought, I thought about writing to the White House and saying, hey, why don't you guys just stop the 1115 waiver? Deny it. And just put the gun to the state's head and saying, here it is. The, shoe, the other shoe has dropped. Let's see what you do. But the problem is, we talked about this over with our advocates, is no, the risk is too big. When you cancel the 1115 waiver, people are literally going to die. Right. People are going to die every day. So, I mean, are you against, are you against that? That, 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 that statement does oh, not... I want, to, I want to follow true. up with something. What, what kind of attitude is that? You just said people are going to die. No, no. He's uh, acting like we're killing people well, one, specifically. One second. As, as Representative Vu was saying that, I saw you kind of nod for a second, Representative Springer. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm we curious do. what I you mean, were thinking. No, on the 1115 and, and Medicaid in general. I mean, we've asked the federal government to block grant it back to us. Let us set up our own program. The problem with we have in Washington with so many of our programs, they're cliffs. You're either on it or you're off of it. There, if we were to design it in Texas, Carol and I would work on a system that says as you increase your income, you get slightly less subsidies to where it comes off and makes sense. We've asked, we've asked the feds to be able to do this. 
Uh, once again, I think it comes back to a November type of deal. I'd love to see a Republican in there who would allow us to bring that back. I've talked to my congressman. They said, you know, be careful what you wish for because you may very well have that. Well, and the issue, I think the issue is, is that why wouldn't the federal government give it back to us in block grants? It's been done in other states. So what is the issue there? Is there an issue because perhaps they don't like what Texas has been doing or may, or may do with it? You know, what exactly is the issue? Why is it that we cannot bring... Remember, these are dollars that were given to the federal government by Texans, by the state of Texas, from their citizens, right? So the citizens of Texas have paid their federal income tax, and to get the money back in form of block grant really is not such a, an unusual statement that there is something else going on there, why we can't... Why we can't I don't that. think you, our state can even pass a bill using a block grant, because as soon as you tag the word Obamacare on the bill, half these guys can't vote for it simply because it's, it's got tagged. Here's that name. the thing with block grants. That last time we had a Republican president, uh, his name was George W. Bush, he came from this state, Rick Perry tried to get a block grant for Medicaid, and the Bush administration said no. So, uh, so, so let's not pretend that. Hey, I've never said he's been to, perfect. To yeah, well, let's not pretend we all were supportive of George Bush's policies either. Okay, but that, well, but that well, also well, raises, noted. but uh, that also raises a question that I would that I wanted to raise before we move on because we should move on to another topic. Um, but, which is, isn't isn't there also the possibility that if a Democrat wins, that it could also reset the conversation, even if it is Hillary Clinton? No. I think so. Sure. Hmm? <laughs> Mixed reviews. You're really pretty pessimistic I, I th- I about think, this, aren't you? I think this election's building up to where, that's, if, if it's, that's even possible, that the Republicans are going to hate Hillary even more than hate Barack Obama. Okay, let's, let's talk about something more local then and maybe a little less, maybe a little less divisive. What about public finance? Uh, school finance, okay? So I just, um, that was fun. So I just came from another panel, and uh, Chairman Bonin was on that panel, and he was saying that he, in, in his view, the House was really going to try to deal with school finance this time, that there was going to be... Do you guys all agree with that? Yes. Yes. I do. I think, I think the House will take it very seriously. Even Sticky agrees. I mean, I, I look for... I, <laughs> I think we should I will, all pause, and they all nodded like, at once. I will geek out like everybody probably in this room, and I'll watch the, I'll watch the testimony on the computer, just because I'm, I'm interested to hear where probes and where PubEd goes with that discussion. So it's a joint meeting between Approps and mm-hmm. PubEd. So next week you should get some flavor of what, of what those two committees are thinking and what the information coming back financially is to us, okay? I, I, think, I think there are a couple of things, just like I said, ACETAR, uh, which is trying to normalize uh, to one do- uh, a dollar, I think, um, as a max on mm-hmm. your property tax per hundred uh, valuation, that is, it was for the fast-growing school districts. I think that has to be addressed. I think there's a lot of different financial measures in in, in public education that have to be addressed. But really and truly, when you get down to it and you listen to it, and I've only, I'm only a freshman this year, when you get down to the nitty-gritty of it, these um, formulas that have not been changed in you know 20 mm-hmm. years or so, they need to be reevaluated. Do we still need to have those? Do we just, you know, how would we address that? I'm not saying to raise them. What I am saying is to reevaluate them because that is what, what you have convoluted 
through a number of different sessions, you've convoluted that process and, the, and that methodology of finance. It is no longer tenable. Some of those formulas and baselines are pretty me, long in the tooth, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Uh, you know, I applauded uh, Chairman uh, Jimmy Don Acock's uh, attempt to try and deal with this. So the problem with this issue is, is that for most of us, it's a pure numbers game, okay? We've got all these different things, variables that we're trying to change and whatnot. No one's talking about the bigger reason of why. And what ends up happening on the Texas House floor is, is that whoever's working on it has sheets for everyone with our school districts on it. Mm -hmm. And there's winners and there's losers. And you got to get 76 winners to get it passed, okay? And and, and that's that's very, very tough to do. Um, But I'll tell you this. Fundamentally, I mean, it's a problem. As far as I can tell, there's like three people in the state who really understand our current school finance system. And... That's not the way the government should operate at all. We should all be able to go back to a Rotary Club and explain it in five minutes sure. how school finance works. Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. We're operating off of a formula from the you know, mid-1980s. Right. And as I stated earlier, this recapture uh, issue is, is hurting school districts like Houston. I mean, we will have to pay back, I think it's about $160 million. Can you do it without any new money? Well, I think that... I don't think so. I think it would be very difficult to do without new money. Um, But I I think this is an important uh, bridge topic when we talk about taxes, right? And and we have the the Senate talking a lot about property taxes and tax cuts and tax reform and so forth. And and it seems like a lot of the attention has been focused on what city governments are doing, what county governments are doing, and how do we rein them in. Yeah, the reality is over half of our property tax bill goes to our local school district. Right. Um, and so any meaningful discussion about property taxes cannot take place unless you talk about education funding. And you can't blame the school districts because th- they're operating on the system the Texas legislature set up in 2006 mm-hmm. when we last had a school finance lawsuit that the court did rule uh, the system was unconstitutional. So if we want to talk about improving education, improving equity in our public schools, which hopefully we, we all want to do, if we want to talk about how do we help homeowners with uh, property taxes in the face of rising appraisals, particularly in our, our big uh, urban markets, um, then you got to talk about both. You got to talk about public school finance, um, and that's how you get to that's how you get to property taxes. Um, is there enough yeah. Is there enough funding in the system? I doubt it, um, but we haven't had that discussion and haven't had that debate. Um, what I think what for certain is we shouldn't be talking about further cutting the business tax until we figure out school finance. First of all, every study has shown that when you cut the business margins tax, it's, it's revenue neutral because of the amount of, of growth in the economy. So that, that's a false... Well, and let me tell you something I don't think else. every study has shown that. Every study is a lot of studies. When you cut taxes, the economy grows. It just happens. But one of the challenges we're going to face is when we... So we, we agreed to uh, um, school finance. I think one of the challenges we'll see is I think the Senate from the lieutenant governor's side has said it's going to have school choice. If we're going to do anything school-related, so I think the two have to go hand-in-hand. Hand. If We can come up with a solution from the House side to deal with that one issue, but I feel pretty confident, confident that somehow school choice will be lumped on that. Then that creates a much more dynamic deal, especially guys like me in rural Texas. You wanted to jump in there, Representative Wu, before, before I, I invite you back, I, wanna, I do want to comment that for how many people were here for the Senate panel? I tried pretty hard to get them to talk about school choice and school finance, and nobody was really going for talking about finance. It wasn't the whole Senate, and Lieutenant Governor wasn't here. 
I didn't sense a lot of will to talk about school finance. And here's my perspective on what I, I think is the problem with school finance. It's that it's too easy for the legislature, especially you know, for, for the members, House and Senate members, to start to duck behind that there's a school board. And everyone's, there's, the accountability for the way the schools are funded from the state is minimal. Because, it, because when you go back to the district, everyone's like, well, that's, the school district did, did that to you. That's not us. Right? And we can kind of, kind of like just kind of hide and say, well, you know, we don't, we don't want to deal with it because we can push it off and we can make it somebody else's problem. I think politically, that's what it looks like. You know, I, 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 here's my question is, you know, you go in the Texas House and you ask, hey, you just get everybody on other desk and say, who here thinks school, school finance works right? And nobody would raise their hand. He goes, who wants to carry the bill to fix it? <laughs> nobody raised nobody <laughs> raise their hand. Crickets. Because, it's, yeah. because I mean, especially it's, it's going to have to be a Republican. It's going to have to be somebody senior. It's going to be somebody of clout. Right? That narrows it down to a small group of people. Who wants that in their next primary? I mean, who wants to deal with that in their next primary saying, you did this and this this? <laughs> and then you've got a whole group of people who can't even get a hearing in their committee, so they can't carry the bill either, so... <laughs> he may have somebody in particular. I think, I think Jonathan in mind. just volunteered to carry school finance. <laughs> Come on, Jim. Quit making me feel bad. I couldn't get my bills heard there. So Jim, uh, Jim, on the, the so called school choice question, I mean, let's, we're talking about private school vouchers, essentially. And, and in the last two sessions, the, the House, it, the last two sessions at least, the House has had some sort of vote on this, I think, in, in the context of the appropriations bill both times. And overwhelmingly, the House has voted against using public money to go to private schools. Uh, I don't see anything in the House fundamentally changing uh, this coming session yeah. to where you would see a voucher bill passed. Yeah, process. I was going to ask Representative Springer. You kind of alluded to that fact. And that, and that has always been the traditional situation, is that part of it is institutional design, is that right. you can't get a bill like that through the House. Are you guys seeing, I mean, to, to give the Senate a fair shake, I know that we there's not a lot of interest in that, but... <laughs> Um, they are talking about saving, you know, these, these ESAs that were tried in Nevada. Now, we heard from the people that are opponents of that that, you know, you've got this plan. It's being lauded as a model, and we had hearings in the Senate about it, but the, it's been enjoined, and yeah. it hasn't, it's not even been enacted. So do you, is that still your read of it? I mean, does anybody see any of these other things that are, you know, not called vouchers moving the needle at all? You know, and I'll... I'll speak as, you know, and, I, and I'm uniquely different from everybody else on this panel. I'm, I'm the rural guy. I've got 22 counties, 10% of the state, 72 school districts. TPPF came out and laid out to me how this program works. Um, but you're going to take money from rural schools that will benefit Austin and, and be a detriment to, to, my, to my schools. And, I, and when I then go to the next stage, it says, I do have a couple small little parochial schools in my district. And I have several families below this 200% of poverty. And to tell somebody who struggled to make that choice today that I'm going to let their neighbor now get a new choice to go to that same parochial school, but they can't because they were already there, I think is also wrong. And when I asked the question, I says, why not? Well, the physical note will be too big. So we want a positive physical note. Well, I'm not interested in balancing the budget on the back of kids. So yeah. I may be a rare choice on that one, but, uh, you know, I tell them we've got to work through these issues. And, and, and when you're tight on money, it's a tough time to be that first time out to be able to do that. Last session, if you were going to do it, 
you had the money, you could have stepped up the, the basis to figure out how to possibly work it. I don't see you have the money to make that solution this session. And I think it really depends on what kind of district you have. So I have a district where 95% of the people in my district send their kids to one particular ISD, which happens to be fabulous. They don't want it to be touched, right? right. Okay, so, but if you live in an urban school district, when I was on the Dallas City Council, I represented Dallas, obviously, and um, the, the amount of poverty in Dallas, the inner city in Dallas, the, the schools in the inner city of Dallas, so many more different challenging types of issues that perhaps can be met by a different solution, and now you're getting a lot of charter schools, a lot of magnet schools, and that kind of thing, a lot of that kind of choice going on, even from the school district and those from, from outside the school district coming in and starting charters, KIPP Academy, so on and so forth. A lot of good choices there, but that district is completely different than the district that I, the school district, than the school district that I represent now. Just completely different. There's like apples and oranges. And I know that Carol represents uh, uh, the city of Houston, and I'm sure you see this as well. It's, it's just, it just is a completely different model. As a matter of fact, there's an area in Dallas where there are so many charter schools and choice schools mm -hmm. in that area that now they're ha having a difficult time with the DIS, the Dallas Independent School District High School, of making the physical plants work. Because you have to have so many children in order to have enough money to run the physical plant of your school. So, I mean, and those are... Those are things that they're going to have to address, no doubt. But, um, you know, but I think on the flip side, we do what's right for children. And in that case, that was what was right for children, is to allow them to have that choice uh, within their districts. But in my particular case, in my district, they, they, don't, yeah. they do not want But in some ways, it feels vouchers. to me like those limited, you know, those successes within mm -hmm. public schools and charters have actually made it even harder to pass some kind of a more comprehensive choice. In some ways, you know, because what's happening Classic is, voucher hey, bill in the hey, house. Hey, it's really easy to pass a school choice that doesn't cost the state anything. Do what you do in House District 68, which is we have open districts. Every district's open. Sure. You can go to whatever school you want. That's right. Same and way. that's actually... And, and, and change yeah. ISD the same way. Yeah, right. Same yeah. way in my area. But that's inside the ISD. I'm saying you can leave your ISD and go yeah. to another that's ISD. That's actually true in the Dallas area, and too, so, if, if you... I if find they, it interesting that, you know... Everybody's district, you know, is kind of against it, but we haven't had a statewide run on not not wanting to support school choice that is one in how long? I mean, this was a front and center issue. Texas voters sent him with a mandate. He said, "This is what I want to do. This is a top three issue." And Dan Patrick was was overwhelmingly elected. So I think we need to be conscious of that too. And I also find it a bit ironic that uh, when we hear uh, an emotional plea to you know, spend all this in health care or whatever the case may be, but we just ignore the fact that the people who are really suffering here are the minority communities, the lower income, people who are stuck in urban school districts, like Representative Coop said, who can't get out. I, but nobody I, wants to talk about that. I, I really appreciate your concern for my voters and for my yeah. constituents, <laughs> but let me tell you that my people who are poor, who are minority, who are immigrants, they don't want vouchers. Okay. Okay. Well, then they, um, they want, they want solid public schools. They want solid public schools. They want to be able because, to go to the school yeah. that's near their home. Yeah. Let's, yeah. And let, let's, yeah. Well, and, then they can stay there. This whole thing about whether it's these, these savings accounts or tax credits, whatever you want to call them, the numbers I've seen are what? You know, $2,000, $3,000 a student per year. Most any private school we're talking about, 
that is a, is a good private school that you'd want to send your kid to is well in excess of $10,000 a year mm -hmm. tuition yes. in most cases. Mm -hmm. So if you're talking about a lower income family, um, they're not going to be able to make up that six, $7,000 difference. Who's that going to help? It's going to help the people who already send their kids there in the first place, like Drew was talking about. So um, it, this, is, this is a red herring. 95% of Texas kids go to public schools. That's where we need to focus our attention. Yeah. I agree with a lot of what he just said. And what he pointed out is very true. The higher income, wealthy individuals in this state have school choice. It is the lower income folks who are trapped right now. Although that varies a lot depending on from place to place, depending on what transfer rates look like, et cetera. So. And, and let me say this, too. I've been very critical of certain plans that have involved school choice, okay? For instance, I don't want the government to go in and start mandating tests on homeschoolers or private schools. If they want to opt out of it, I want to be able to, pr to protect those folks, yeah. okay? Which means they get to decide whether they take state dollars or not, because if you take state dollars, there has to be accountability. So the devil's in the details in a lot of this, but to throw out a blanket, no, I don't like that, when what we're trying to do is help the people, give them more choice and empower, specifically lower income folks, with this idea, I think is, is just wrong. What's going on with local control in the Texas legislature right control. now? <laughs> because it seems to me that we've seen some very unusual things happen yes. in the last couple of years and that, you know, we, we've done polling on this and I think my partner Josh Blank is in the room somewhere, but it's very hard to nail down any kind of consistent set of attitudes about local control among the public and I think we're seeing that among the lawmakers, too. Yeah. Well, you have at least two of us that I know of that come from local government. We served on the, Houston, on the city council in our respective cities. And local control was very important. I think it's very hypocritical for us to say we don't want Washington to tell us, us how to run Texas. But then we want to control how the counties and the city governments are operating. So I, you can't have it both ways. I think local control is going to be an issue that, that dominates the session, whether we're talking about Uber versus taxis or Airbnb. Uh, Drew, you had the uh, short-term rental bill, uh, whether or not you force somebody to have clean sheets if they have an Airbnb, all those issues. I think those issues are best dealt with at the local level. Let the cities deal with those. I'm what's, for clean sheets. What's I'm for clean what? sheets, too, but... <laughs> how, is it, how is it hard to understand? It's only local control if you do what we like. Yes. And Gene's right, to, to a certain extent. It's the most abused word in Austin is local control. But we have the set rules of what government's supposed to do at each level. And we get mad when the feds reach into what we I deem do. to be the state's role. And if the cities, if we're doing what... The city should be doing, tell them when to pick up the trash, when to do some of these other things. And, and I would even throw potentially Uber into that scenario. While I disagree with Austin, I'm not sure it's our role to come in and fix that. But you've got to figure out what that, but, but I'm ready to hear the arguments. It may be. But you've got to put it back to where the right, the right level is. And when I had TML in on one of my bills that dealt with local control, I mean, local control to me is the citizens sitting out here in this room first and foremost. And they should have the control. And when government at any level is stepping on their rights, then I think a lot of times we step in and say, no, you can't do that. And I know the cities sometimes want to be their own country. 
and they don't like being in America, they don't like being in Texas, and they want to do some. When it comes to certain policy, when it comes to certain, you, you policies, said such a mean thing in such a nice way. I don't know any city. What that was city very are you nicely done. About? I don't know uh, the city yeah, but, uh, that doesn't uh, want to be in America. Yeah, when it comes to certain policies, I mean, when I ask the question, it says, "Where do cities?" limits go back to and whether it's the size of soda cans you can have how much salts in the food whether a city should be able to regulate abortion they all want it they said yes that's the city's rights and i adamantly disagree with tml on that wait we, on the first day of the next session we will all stand and take the oath of office and swear to uphold the constitution and one of those things that we have to do is uh protect our constituents and every texan's uh, rights to life liberty and property rights uh, protect their individual rights. And one thing that has gotten somehow lost, I, when, when people say I've heard it often from the left, is, oh, well, you get mad when the federal government comes in and tells us what to do, so why are you doing it? Well, let me explain something. It was the states that created the federal government. Okay? We got together and formed the federal government. And there is a Tenth Amendment that protects our power to be a state. We then went, the state created these individual cities. So to say that it's some kind of natural progression, if you want to break it down in a government sense, it is the state that is in control of what the city should do and the federal government to a certain extent outside of the Constitution. I, you seem to be so, sh- you're shaking have, your head, Representative Wu. Cities help. have their own I, Am I wrong? I, 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 I didn't cities? shake my head. I, I was just grimacing. How am I wrong? <laughs> I'm sorry. How am I wrong? <laughs> Uh, I think the, you were grimacing so hard. Did the federal government create away. states? The, the federal, uh, the Tenth Amendment, otherwise known as the Federal Supremacy Clause, um, uh, doesn't work the way you think it does. Okay, and, who created who? And 150 years of uh, SCOTUS decisions pretty much says that. And, and the what, American and people civil created war. the federal government. Yeah. The states got together yeah. and created so, the federal government. Uh, 75% of the like. I'm trying to do math. 75% of the states that exist now were not in existence when the nation was created. So, um, e- so let me ask you guys this then. I mean, given this mess... Did we create the cities, Gene? <laughs> no, the cities kind of popped into existence by themselves. And- yeah, okay, but, this, is, this is an important no, no, point. This, this is very important. Yeah, before you guys go too far off, okay. just, and, I, and I will come back to you, I promise. Just, so how, is, how are we going to sort this out? How do you expect to see this come up when y'all get together in January, you know, I, I, it seems to me there are a couple of things that are really looming that are going to test a bunch of this. I mean, yeah. it's the, the I mean, it, you know, ride sharing. There are a couple of things where this is really, all of these theories are going to be put to the test, it seems to me. Thanks. Yeah, what sure. Sure. Well, I, I think you know, certainly cities are a subdivision of the state. It, it, no, one, no one denies that. But the cities are created to, you know, be able to make some local decisions locally. And, you know, there are people who live in you know, my area who live in Arlington, would never consider living anywhere else in Arlington and love Arlington. And there are people who live in, in Dallas who, you know, don't want to live out, you know, anywhere but, you know, the, the core of the city. And, and all these communities have their own unique fabric. And, and that's because their local leaders make the decisions that, that are best, that they think are best for their citizens. And, and that's what we should encourage and, and allow. We shouldn't have, we don't want the uniformity cities, across our And the cities state. can do whatever they want as long as they don't impede someone's constitutional rights and liberties. Okay. That's when it becomes a problem. And that's when, what like Representative... What yeah, constitutional I, right have they impeded? Well, in, in regards to who? You're telling a business owner that he can't use a, a plastic bag 
You cannot do that. You don't have okay? a, you don't you're have telling, a constitutional you're right telling to Austin, You're telling Austin folks that they cannot hire a company that they would like to. Okay, There's before we start debating the constitutionality... I think I missed that day in law school. Before we start debating the constitutionality of bags, <laughs> I think what we want to do is, before I open it up to the audience, I want to, as we've discussed, I want to give you each a shot. If you could move something through the process and get it really on the agenda, say you could get a committee hearing, um, <laughs> what would it be? One thing, just real quick. If you, I mean, if I said, came to you and said, you got one thing that you can really get and make the process work on, what would it be? Uh, not to be called Representative Vo. <laughs> 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 uh, no, um, I, I, I know you asked for one, but I have the two because they're, they're interconnected. One is raising the juvenile jurisdiction age. This is something we've been working on for a while. We've been, people have been working on it for 20 years. Um, making criminal responsibility as an adult be it at 18, not 17. Last, last session, we were one of nine states left in the nation that hasn't done this. We're now one of seven states. I would like Texas not to be dead last. Um, and the other thing that's interconnected with that is CPS reform. Uh, probably half the bills we're going to carry next session is going to be uh, overhaul of a lot of CPS issue. The biggest issue, funding. And we're going to talk about actually paying caseworkers, actually providing support and treatment and, and counseling to kids who have been very badly damaged. Yeah. I, I'm going to say public school finance reform. I, I think it is, is absolutely critical, and the, the Supreme Court has let us off the hook, right? So, you know, we don't have to do it, and we can only do it if the legislature summons the will and the political courage to, to make it happen this year, the longer we wait, the greater the price we pay, and, and 4.2 million school children pay a price for our inaction. So I hope that's our number one item. Representative Stickland. Well, I'm going to cheat and I'm going to say two, because the first one's obvious. It's constitutional carry. We're no longer going to charge the citizens for their right to bear arms. Um, but the one that might shock a lot of people is uh, the amount of work that I'm putting into CPS reform myself, and a lot of the things that Representative Wu uh, mentioned I will be on board with and coming out with some stuff uh, probably coming from uh, some additional angles. Uh, for instance, I think retention is a huge problem, um, which means I think we're going to have to pony up some more dollars and pay caseworkers more. That'll be part of my proposal. Uh, but it will also include trying to cut down on the number of caseloads. We're going to be talking about parental rights through the CPS uh, process. We're going to talk about trying to keep kids with uh, their kinship when at all possible and, uh, you know, really asking the faith-based community to get more involved and step up where they haven't been. We need more foster care parents and options so that we can make sure the kids are in the best spot possible. So that's actually where I'm putting a lot of my effort. That was so <laughs> compassionate. Listen, there's a proper role of, there is a proper role of government. And the, in the places where we should be, we have to do right, especially okay. when it comes to uh, the idea of us taking a child from their parents. Okay. We better not mess that up. No, and, and while we had a lot of discussions about here, some of the partisan or tougher ones, I, I will say, you know, Texas is so lucky and so great because I talk with my three Democratic colleagues here on a regular basis, and we do things that they do not do in Washington, D.C., and we will continue to work on all these issues. And I think when you ask us, most of us are going to address ones that don't grab the news headlines. Yeah. I mean, mine that I've been working on and, and want to see worked on is mental health reform. Um, we have overcrowding in our jails, not just in Harris County, but in my rural districts. And leaving somebody in Jacksboro, Texas, sit there for six months 
because they're waiting for a bed that's not getting the treatment they need, just costs the local taxpayers dollars. And like I said, look forward to working with the committee that's working on that. We've put some ideas forward. But, you know, those are one of the things that I think that we can address that will make Texas a better place to be, that we work and we do those. We may not agree on some of the other things, but uh, I think we'll find the, the grounds where we do and we'll make Texas better. Well, I have to go down to my third one. CPS would be my first one. School uh, Reform of school finance would be my second, so I'll go down to workforce <laughs> development. Yeah. And workforce development is something that I think is intertwined with our education system, both pub ed and higher ed. And as a matter of fact, we have a working group uh, in, in my district working with UNT, UTD, and our ISD uh, to get in our community colleges to get these students either a certification that pays a living wage or to get them with three uh, hours of college credit and along with that, and every parent in the room will probably be nodding their head in just a second, and students as well, when you have these AP classes and dual credit classes, they don't always transfer into these universities as uh, core credits, rather, and a lot of them only transfer in as um, electives, and that then increases the cost of education. So I'll go to my third one. That's a good one. <laughs> well, you heard it here at the Trip Fest live. You've got the uh, beginnings of the sticky woo bill on, uh, on CPS. The st- sticky woo bill. Um, Call it the woo Is it a wooing? She's been saving that up probably for two years now. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, I'll go down to my fifth one since all the others have been taken. But something that's kind of gone be- below the radar screen um, is what the, the acts that we took. Um, to the film commission. I, we started out budget before last uh, with, I think, $95 million for the film industry, and it was cut down to, I think, 35 And since then, we've lost 16 TV shows, six TV series pilots, and 15 movies. And these are all movies that, and shows that have been taken to some of our neighbors in, yeah. in New Mexico, um, we lost the um, um, several several TV shows, but for example, we had a TV show that was called Astronaut Wives. Yeah, that Houston lost because of the incentives, and now it's being filmed in Louisiana, and it ties back to workforce development because the way the legislation was written up, seventy percent you have to prove that seventy percent of the project is employees are going to come from Texas. Sounds great, and it is, but If we don't have the workforce, the people that are ready to work on those sets and in the production, then that's one of the reasons why they're leaving and going to other states, like even Oklahoma. Can I I just say that (laughs) it's so hard to sit here. No, no, no. No, you don't get to comment Everybody got a freebie. I sat and listened to your very compassionate I know, but I don't care. Government... Shouldn't All care right. what TV shows are on TV. All right. I mean, no, come but on. If, if, you, if you look at it from, from an economical standpoint, we're losing money at a time when we need every revenue stream we can imagine. But if we are not offering the incentives and people are packing up and going to other states, and we lost just about $683 million. I'm thinking a TV costs. show about an insurgent representative. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Let's uh, let's take some questions from the audience while we still have some time. <laughs> Mike's here, please, and and to, to allow for the optimum number of questions, if you could minimize the statement part, assume that folks know the background of the policy. Let's start over here. 
have to get a little shorter. The, it, am, am I correct in understanding that there's a good chance that you might um, support um, a bill that would protect my property rights by allowing my county commissioners to do some more things? To allow... I, there's a, yes, I would like for my county commissioners to have the ability to regulate some oh. things to protect my property rights. You've got to have property rights in, in Texas. So eminent domain is abused But right now the, the county commissioners nor my city, which I'm in their ETJ, neither one of them can do the things that, that our neighborhood wants. I'm very interested in protecting property I rights. Would, all right. I'll come see you. Okay. And so is Chris Turner. He just Where told me. We all are. Yeah. yeah. I think she's talking about it. she's in an unincorporated area, right. and so no one's there to regulate. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. ETJs are just, it's a, you choose to live out there. Yeah. They, they don't have challenge. the ability to create an ordinance. Are you in Harris County? No, I live in Hayes County, and we are not allowed to regulate outdoor lighting, and we have and some incredible issues and people being run off their property because of it. Have you talked okay. to your state rep? I have. Okay. That's a good start. Hey, I'll, uh, whoa. Uh, Andrew Dobbs, Texas Campaign for the Environment. Um, the only thing you have to pass is the budget, but if you don't pass a Railroad Commission sunset bill, then we won't have a Railroad Commission anymore. Um, and so I would say that's a pretty important piece of legislation for the next session. Um, the Railroad Commission staff said that their enforcement is really terrible. Um, they have major problems in the enforcement, major problems with tracking information about enforcement, and major problems making that information public to, uh, available to the public. Okay, question. Will y'all support uh, a reform of uh, enforcement at the Railroad Commission? And what are you planning on doing with it? Third time's a charm, right? Sure. To, <laughs> we, I think uh, we, we failed the... I mean, the Energy Committee kicked out... I mean, I said it's an energy. The Energy Committee kicked out the uh, sunset both times. It basically ate it on the House floor... Um, and we're hoping third time's the charm. <laughs> I, I mean, enforcement is a huge issue in uh, in the state. I mean, we have probably the most number of pipelines, uh, mileage, uh, and number of uh, all, uh, drill sites and everything. You know, this is about protecting your local local area. If, if there's no one enforcing the rules, do you, then... do you expect substantive? You know, any significant changes in Oversight or anything in the in I mean, the area they're concerned about. I mean, I think the the uh, sunset review on it is pretty thorough. Um, I, I don't think there's going to be huge changes, but like really, I think the goal is just to pass it. <laughs> okay. Well, and then we can see what's in it. <laughs> okay. So let's. Uh, I think I, I think you were first. Phil Prayson with KXAN. Um, the federal government kind of put a uh, big roadblock in uh, for HB two and also voter ID. Do you think there'll be another attempt at those same angles or same topics but different angles? To you those bet two your things? bottom dollar. Can you explain what you would like Listen, to see? Because I want Texas to be a place where we value life. I'm not going to apologize that I believe that life begins at conception and ends at natural death, and I'm not going to stop. I will do everything that we possibly can, spend every dollar we can to protect the innocent children, the, the unborn. What, yeah. why don't we, I, thought, I thought you wanted less regulation. Why don't we just do the East We thing? have a proper role of the government. <laughs> At the beginning of every session. Is a key component okay. of that. Right. Well, well, before we, before we have the argument about the issue, I do want to 
I want to ask the other members, though, do you think it's coming? I mean, do you think it'll come back? Will there be more legislation on this front? You know, well, I'm bringing it, yeah. so y'all are voting. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, I mean, uh, uh, Wait a minute, you won't get a hearing. Well, then we're going to put, then we'll get a, we'll get an amendment or two. I mean, the Supreme Court was pretty clear on House Bill 2. It, it's unconstitutional yeah. because right. it, it infringed on a woman's right to privacy and ability to access basic health care. And, and on this, you know, valuing life proposition, uh, you know, I go back to, to one of the statistics I mentioned earlier that we have this epidemic rise in women dying during pregnancy and in childbirth in Texas. It just so happened that trend line starts going up when all the funding gets cut for, to Planned Parenthood and other uh, health care providers because we're not providing prenatal care to, to pregnant women in Texas. If they'll stop murdering children, so that may well be the selling body for, parts, for the then we'll fund them. Yeah. Okay, let's go back over here then. Uh, hi, I'm Zachary Price. I'm a student here at UT Austin. Um, Good. Uh, <laughs> And uh, I, I wanted to return to what you guys were talking about a few minutes ago about uh, the rights of cities to govern themselves. Uh, specifically, I heard uh, the Uber Lyft mentioned, um, and uh, you were talking about the rights, uh, the, like not infringing on the rights of people, but the uh, Uber Lyft proposition was put to a citywide vote. Um, I wanted, I guess, to get your thoughts on on. Does the state government have the should the state government have the ability to overwrite the vote of the citizens in the city of Austin? No, we shouldn't. I think whatever the voters in Austin voted on, people were informed. Hopefully, they made a decision, and it ought to stay intact. Are we going to see a? But there, we're probably going to see a ride-sharing bill, though, right? A state. Oh yeah, I'm sure there is. I mean, it's not. It's way low on mine, but I mean, you know, it's one of those. So I haven't followed it to be truthful, but. But that's also why we come back down here is we want to hear the testimony. We want to hear something. Maybe somebody brings something up that we don't know about that has a reason why we should be in there. But I, today, I don't know what that would be. You guys all? Okay. I agree with Carol. I mean, I think, you know, I've used Uber. I like Uber. You know, but the city of Austin, the voters decided uh, that we want to enforce these rules. And as I understand it, Uber chose to leave. Uh, so... I don't know why the legislature needs to get involved in, in that decision. Because we have a constitutional republic, not a democracy. We're not ruled by the angry mob. We're ruled by constitutional rights. That's why. So don't you think we should respect the will of the voters? They voted on something. Like I just said, I am grateful that it we was... live in a constitutional republic and not a pure democracy Local where control, one group of people but can like... take the rights of another group at any time. That's dangerous. I don't, I don't remember any angry mobs in the Uber vote. Well, they were taxi cab driver <laughs> lobby at this point, I believe. Over here, quick question. Um, over, this, is, this question is for all six members of the panel, yes or no. Over 60% of the lobbyists at the Capitol represent governmental entities. Do you support the abolishing the practice of taxpayer-funded lobbying? That's not true for one yeah uh that's no it's nowhere close most of the government relations uh, uh uh government relations people from agencies what they come to do is they come answer questions when we have hearings when we have a bill they say hey you filed this bill you had a specific question we're here to answer it they almost never provide opinions in fact a lot of the agencies are by policy don't provide opinions on uh, on what, what what you're trying to do. I this was is, primarily talking about local governments. The local well, local, uh, local uh, governments uh, have an absolute right to come and lobby us. Why uh, not? 
If the so, city of Houston has a specific problem, if the city of Houston has an Uber, uh, has an Uber uh, ordinance or the city of Austin has an Uber ordinance, and they say, hey, why are you trying to subvert our democratically uh, made policy? They have an absolute right to come to Austin I, and say, hey, don't screw with this. It sounds I agree. like no. I mean, the, the city, the, if the city of Houston wants to come down and lobby on how dangerous or what detriment revenue caps might be on local government, they should. I'm a no also. Council members come down and, and, and make, they're just like any citizens, council members come down and they make themselves, uh, their viewpoints well known as to what, you know, why they passed something. Um, and we do the same thing. We, we go back to the we city. Go to Washington. Right, sure, we, yeah, sure. we go to Washington and say, hey, you guys need to stop doing this or start doing this or give us money for this. And we go to the city and say, hey, you guys need to start doing this or stop doing this or give us money for this. What I believe he was talking about was whether we should take money from the citizens to use that to hire a paid lobbyist who then usually comes to a government entity and asks for more taxpayer dollars that they are being used. Absolutely. If who? their local citizenry voted on those for those members of their city council. No, we're not talking city about city council. I'm talking about that, a, a lobbyist from one of the I, I don't know. I didn't ask the question, but so, I think that's what he's talking yeah, about. So, so, so is that a yes or a no? Oh, am I for that? Oh, no, no, no. No, are you his question was would you be for banning Am I for banning it? Yeah. Yes, but okay. is, where is it on the priority list again? Like, okay. like Drew said, we can't tackle them all ourselves. I mean, so. and I'm at a huge disadvantage, you know, to, you know, Carol represents Houston. I mean, I, I've got 22 counties, and some of mine, it's like the easiest function for them is to, you know, they're in an association of rural county judges. Now, I pick up the phone if they come in. I use it as information. I don't take it, at, you know, as the gospel. I'm also going to listen to the other side. And I try to end up texting all my county just, really, y'all want this or don't want this? <laughs> so you're not you too know, worried it, about it's, it. Yeah, no, it's not, I'm not worried about it. Just to, just to make sure. I mean, yeah, I, think I, the, I think the taxpayers, I mean, it ought to be disclosed. I mean, I think that's one of the transparency issues we need to, to know. I, I do think the citizens need to know what their local governments are spending so that they can keep that in check more than us in Austin trying to keep that in check. Right. Yeah. I, I, I'm a no also. I think, you <laughs> okay. know, cities have, counties have the right to, to petition their legislature. Okay, we have time for one more quick one. Um, Texas cities have some of the uh, highest degrees of income inequality relative to other cities in the U.S. We have a lot of people who are, have jobs, they're working, but they're not making a living wage. So what can we do about uh, income inequality? That, you're correct. I, I think there are a handful of states, I'm sorry, cities in Texas that are the most economically segregated in the nation. We're, we're sitting in one of them now. Uh, a lot of that starts with housing, being able to, to build affordable housing in certain communities. We, we have, we've been holding hearings on this issue, and you've had some Supreme Court decisions recently that are going to have an impact on that. Um, we, we have to look for creative ways to allow people to be able to afford a home and to make sure that when you say affordable housing, people don't say not in my backyard, but they're open to the concept. I think on this, and, and her question was income inequality. Um, my family were small business people. Um, we really, I really believe that workforce development, education to workforce development really is a key to that. And I, don't and I don't think that necessarily the government needs to get involved in that. What they need to do is make sure that we have um, 
an, an environment where small businesses can grow. They produce 50% of the jobs in Texas. Uh, and, and that our workforce is well-trained and continually trained to be able to, to address the needs of the workforce. And I think that's where you probably will get the most bang for your buck. Yeah, and regulations is, you know, plays a role in there, especially when you're talking about small businesses that want to start up and compete against, a, you know, a Dell or an Apple or this. I mean, just the, the reg regulations to some of the entries and barriers are so big. We've got to look at those. I mean, maybe it makes sense at, at, at larger, but a smaller ones should have a reduced level. Um, you know, I worked for a company that had 20,000 employees. We had three full-time environmentalists on staff. You know, we'd go out and compete against the mom and pa, and the regulations never hurt us, but they always hurt them because they'd have to hire somebody at $800 an hour to come in and advise them on an environmental issue. So it makes it tough. There, there is no way that I'm going to be in favor of the government coming in and telling a business owner what they can or can't do. And that includes telling them what they're going to pay uh, one of their employees because government cannot solve all of our problems. And what we have to understand about everything that we've discussed here today is you have a choice. You're either going to have a big government and therefore have a small individual or you're going to have a small government with a big individual that can be as big as he wants to be. That's what I fight for. That's why I talk about liberty. That's why I talk about liberty. And you know what? Um, I, I think that Texas has been a good model for that. And I think that's why we're leading the nation in a lot of different areas. And I just realized that I made a fat joke about myself. <laughs> no, no, we did not take that. I, I wasn't going to say anything. Just, just big bone. Yeah. yeah. You know, the passion gets the best of all of us at times. Yeah, there you go. But I, but I want people guys, to understand okay, that. Let me, I'm going to get these guys yeah, too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, I appreciate the question, I, and I agree a lot of what um, the, the previous panelists just said, at, you know, workforce development, housing, all those things come into play. Um, and, and I'll add that I serve on the Higher Education Committee and along the lines of workforce development. We have uh, our state higher ed plans, the 60 by 30 Texas plan that says 60% of uh, 24 to 35 year olds need to have a college, or a college degree or a post-secondary certificate by the year 2030, and that's because 60% of the jobs are gonna require uh, that, that level of education. We're at about 38% right now. So one of the best things we can do to reduce long-term inequality uh, is, is invest in, in public ed and higher ed, uh, but while we're doing that, we should also uh, increase minimum wage and, and pass an equal pay bill. But Let's put it in the hands of people. Let's put a statewide minimum wage referendum in, on 2018. That'd be interesting. Okay. Those are all substantive answers. Um, I'm fine with that, but only the business employers can vote. I want, <laughs> I want to thank all of you. This has been really great, personally. It's been quite, quite fun and quite interesting, and you guys all really took it seriously and engaged. And please, thank our panelists, the terrific panelists.